One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode of CanadaLand is brought to you by Squarespace, the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and for your ideas. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code CanadaLand at checkout. You will get 10% off. On the 4th of July, 2015, Andrew Loku couldn't take it anymore. His upstairs neighbors were making a racket. Again. Partying, loud music, he couldn't sleep. He'd asked them many times to keep quiet, but they never listened. So he picked up a hammer, walked upstairs to the hallway outside of their apartment, and made a racket of his own, banging the walls, their door, the metal railing. Somebody called the cops. Minutes later, he was dead. A police officer, we still don't know the name, shot him twice. We know some things about Andrew Loku, and I'm drawing largely here from a National Post story by Richard Warnica. We know that Andrew Loku had five kids. We know he was a refugee from Sudan, and we know that he was troubled. He had mental health issues, possibly related to what he experienced living through years of civil war in Sudan. We know that he was quiet, gentle, never known to raise his voice or lose his temper. We do have these basic details about his life. But we don't know much about his death. We don't know why things happened so quickly. He was shot right after the cops arrived. They approached him with their guns drawn. Did they try to reason with Andrew Loku? Talk him down? The Toronto Police Special Investigations Unit later announced that there would be no charges against the officer who pulled the trigger. 
and they never said why. They never said anything. Their report on the killing was kept secret. That was before Black Lives Matter. Just minutes ago, as I sit here reading this, minutes ago, the Ontario government released a heavily redacted version of the SIU's report about the killing of Andrew Loku in direct response to the Black Lives Matter protest movement, which uh, of course began in the United States after a spate of similar police killings and which now has chapters in Toronto, Ottawa, and Vancouver. Now, there are hundreds of members of Black Lives Matter in Canada. But when you've heard about this group, there's one voice you've likely heard more than any other. And he's not even a member. His voice may be familiar to you. Desmond Cole. Desmond Cole. Desmond Cole. Desmond Cole. Mr. Cole, I appreciate speaking with you. Desmond has become the go-to guy for media requests about Black Lives Matter in Canada. In fact, he's become the go-to guy for media requests about racism itself for like a year now. And it has not been easy. Desmond wrote a feature for Toronto Life magazine about police carding, which is a polite word for racial profiling, where the cops randomly stopped mostly black people and demanded to see their ID. Toronto Life made it their cover story. They made Desmond Cole their cover. They put his face on the cover of that issue. His face was on newsstands throughout the city, and what he wrote in that magazine touched a nerve. It was a personal story about how he has been stopped by the cops again and again, despite having zero involvement with crime. That resonated with Toronto Life readers and with Toronto at large, and it put pressure on the issue. And the cops ended up abandoning carding. Desmond's story was directly credited by the mayor for this. And suddenly he was everywhere. A Toronto Star column, a talk radio show, a book deal, constant interviews, public appearances, speeches, panel discussions. Now, all of that is typically really good stuff for a freelance journalist's career, But in this case, I think it was also very difficult stuff uh, that's hard for me to fathom. I mean, I have never had to represent anyone but my own self. What is it like to be looked to as a spokesperson, not just for very serious issues, but for hundreds of thousands of other people? I can't really relate. But I'll get into it with Desmond in a minute. And we will also talk about why he is no longer going to be hosting Commons. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Randy Banderop, Jamie Broadhurst, Rich Arnold, Joshua White, Chris, George Gregory, Jeff Hume, and Garrett Biglow. Garrett, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I'm tired of waking up to shock value, gore porn news on the CBC. I super appreciate the context and thoughtful discussion surrounding stories on Canada. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. 
This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace.com. Squarespace, of course, is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace, of course, is a very easy way to make a very beautiful website. If you've checked them out in the past, check them out again because they are always adding new, very modern, beautifully designed templates. And it's kind of fun to see such a beautiful website that you can just click on and start making your own. You can just make it into your website. You can replace the images with your own images. You can replace the copy with your copy. You can play with it with no stakes. You don't have to give them a credit card or anything to start to design your own website based on these beautiful designs. And then... If you do want to make it your website, and if you need a website, this is a really good way to have one, then you can sign up and it's, it's cheap. It's cheap and it's, it's really intuitive and painless because they've taken care of everything. All of the backend, the support is there 24 seven. If you need to sell things, your website comes with a free online store. If you want people to check out your website on their phone or a tablet, it'll just work. It just works no matter what. If you sign up for a year, you get a free domain. All of it is streamlined. They've made what can be a very annoying and detail-oriented process kind of fun. I mean, very easy, but also even kind of enjoyable. Check it out. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you do decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CanadaLand at checkout. You will get 10% off and you will be showing your support for this show. Thank you, Squarespace. Also, very quickly, if you live in Victoria or can get to Victoria this week... I will be doing a live taping of Canada Land at UVic, Thursday, May 5th, 7 p.m. This is sort of an extraordinary thing in Victoria. The only employee-owned local television station in North America is CHEK, Czech, in Victoria. I will be speaking with Rob Germain of Czech about this why local TV even, and what does it mean to have an independent station like that? And what what is this thing, this local TV station? What is it in any community in Canada? Why do we need it? What can it do in the best possible circumstance? All of that will be discussed at this live taping. If you want tickets, come to our Facebook page, come to our website, and come say hi and ask some questions and, and hang out a bit. That is this Thursday, May 5th, 7 p.m. at UVic. Hey, Desmond. Hey, yo. You've had a, a hell of a spring. That's true. That is very true. I agree with you. I don't even know where to begin. It's been a long time since you and I spoke. You Who been, are you again? <laughs> you, you've been, I haven't seen you in a long time. Listeners of Commons haven't heard you in some time. And a lot of this has to do with Black Lives Matter. Indeed. The very historic protest that took place, organized by Black Lives Matter outside of the police station in Toronto, 
was something that garnered almost all of my attention while it was going on. And the ensuing kind of political responses to that have also been something I've been following. But, you know, I kind of went all the way on this one. I went and camped out with the protesters while they were there at 40 College Street in Toronto. And I stayed with them for almost a week and a half straight. So I kind of immersed myself uh, in in that environment. I want to know a lot about that. I'm so curious about your experience, both because it's a non-traditional way of engaging with a, a topic as a journalist. And we've always sort of been upfront about this. And it's what I've liked about your approach there is no conceit of dispassionate objectivity. Uh, and some people would say, well, you're, how could you be a journalist when you're an activist? And though I think you're not formally a member, I think it's fair to say that you are sympathetic to the aims of this movement. I'm curious about that, though. I want to know your perspective on what it's like to be kind of in and of, but also uh, observing. And then there's this thing that seems to have happened where you became, though you're not even officially a member, the go-to person, maybe like kind of the only one, the, the immediate go-to person for the media and, and the impact that had on your life. But I think we need to start with Black Lives Matter itself. Orient those of us who need a little orientation here. That's a that's a really good place to start, actually, because um, my first interaction with the bigger movement of Black Lives Matter was when I went to Ferguson, Missouri in November of 2014, right? And I did that after a grand jury in that city decided they were not going to charge a guy named Darren Wilson, a police officer, after he shot multiple times and killed an unarmed 18-year-old uh, kid by the name of Michael Brown. Yeah. This is, of course, the story that sent shockwaves all around the world. And I was very interested in this movement. I was very interested in the ways that black people in the United States were pointing out the way that racism and policing come together and condemning it and saying it's not good enough anymore. Black Lives Matter is not about the Toronto chapter. Black Lives Matter is not about an organization with a structure. It's, it's an idea. I'm invested in it because just because I'm a, what people call a journalist doesn't mean that the things that Black Lives Matter fights for or talks about don't affect me. I was afraid, for example, to get on a plane and go down to Ferguson, Missouri to cover what was going on there because I'm a black man and black people are getting shot with impunity in that country and in my country. So just covering that uprising was scary. But I know I went in part because I'm black and I'm one of the only journalists in this country who did bother to go down there. And I just think it's silly to try and pretend that those things are not related. I, I am deeply invested in what's being discussed when it comes to Black Lives Matter. We watch this all happen and we tisk 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 and we feel like, okay, that's a really bad problem in America. When you say Black Lives Matter Toronto, Black Lives Matter Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, Ottawa too now. Black Lives Matter Ottawa. I think people get a little bit like, whoa, wait a second. Like, are, is this a me too thing? Come on. We're Canada. We're, we're, we're where black people escaped from America to go. I'm saying this, you know, I don't want to like feign naivete. There were some cases here in Toronto that I think – really compromise our ability to consider ourselves not implicated in this problem. We are implicated. I like the Me Too question, though. I like the idea that what black people in Canada are doing is that we're bored or we're envious. We're envious of people who are grieving black folks getting killed with impunity and we're bored. 
So what we do is we just look at that and we go, wouldn't it be nice if we also could pretend that we were grieving, if we also could pretend that we were upset about police brutality? That, that me too, is it's incredibly insulting. But we hear that narrative a lot, Jesse. That we you're hear, co-opting the movie, yeah, co-opting yeah. the anger. It's, oh, it's not so bad here. Oh, but this whole thing is about trying to gaslight black people. And gaslighting the term, as explained, by the way, beautifully by September Anderson on a former episode of Canada Land Commons, is when you tell someone that something that is very obviously happening is not happening. You try to describe someone's reality to them better than they can describe their own reality. And that's what this whole thing is about. How is it that people, mostly white people, are so much more knowledgeable about what black people in Canada are thinking and fighting about and are upset about than we are. Why does anyone have the right to say that you're co-opting this? Why don't they just listen? This is a historic time in our country where black people are actually coming together around a lot of important things. And instead of listening, the reaction is for people who are not black to try and describe our own feelings and motivations back to us as if we don't understand them. I will, before we criticize the kind of uh, mainstream Canadian response to Black Lives Matter, and specifically the Canadian media's response, Mm -hmm. first, like, why were you, I mean, how many media appearances did you do? Hmm. So the truth is that um, I actually very rarely left the protest site except to sleep or to take a break. And then I would come right back for, like I said, the better part of a week and a half. And the protest lasted two and a half weeks. I wasn't doing a lot of media during that time because most people in the mainstream media were not talking about the protest. There was a story or two when the protest began. And then I think the mainstream media's idea was, well, nothing new has happened. Like, as in, oh, yeah, you know, people are still sleeping outside in sub-zero temperatures They're still organizing, but you know, it's not really that interesting. So I stayed because I was like, I'm not missing any of this. Mm -hmm. All the rest of my colleagues are missing out on history, but I'm not going to miss it. I'm going to stay right here. And that was how I was able to learn about and capture and document a lot of what I did. But that was incredibly exhausting. It was interesting, though. It was after the protest ended Black Lives Matter got a meeting with Kathleen Wynne, the premier. Yeah. And then this tweet that one of the organizers of Black Lives Matter had made months before the protest, that started getting attention. That was when my phone really started ringing. And that's when we got a lot of coverage. Just the term Black Lives Matter Toronto started to pop up and become a hot topic. There was more coverage about a tweet by one of the organizers that happened months ago than there was about the actual fighting for justice that the group was doing out in public. So this is what we need to zero in on here, because I think that it's I think it's safe to say that the protest, you know, you can't say it was ignored. There was coverage. It, it, was, it was noted that this was happening. Sure. But the point at which it became uh, a hot media controversy was this tweet. And uh, I want to play one of your media appearances on News Talk 1010, where you are... I am a host. You're a host on News Talk 1010. Here you were a guest on Jerry Agar's show? This was Ryan Doyle's show, The Live Drive, in the afternoon. Okay. His Drive Home show. And he had on uh, Macaroni with him as a guest host. Macaroni from the National Post. That's right. And I don't think that in this clip we actually hear uh, what's in the tweet. Do you remember the the actual language of the tweet? I can get really close, but essentially uh, the tweet is from... 
uh, one of the organizers of Black Lives Matter named Yusuf Kogali. And can I quickly give the context? Sure. It was in February, which is Black History Month, of course. And Yusra was dealing with, according to her, a lot of people who were, why are you talking about all this race stuff? You know, racism, systemic racism doesn't exist in Canada. Uh, uh, sexism, the way you're talking about it, these things don't exist in Canada. Why are you going on and on about this? So Yusra's tweet in response to lots of messages like that was, please, Allah, help me to not cuss slash kill these men and white people out here today, please, 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 I believe was the wording of the of, of, of the tweet from uh, February. From February. And then I think that she deleted that tweet at some point afterwards? Uh, I think what happened was that um, my colleague at News Talk 1010, Jerry Agar, um, surfaced this tweet and made a big deal out of it. And then- If I remember, he, he to prove that it had been tweeted, he printed out of like a paper copy of it and took a picture of it with like his pencil, like here it is, like like so it looked more like I think a piece of evidence. Um, I don't know why printing a tweet does that, but that, that could have could have screenshotted it. To yeah, be fair, you know. But. So he so he <laughs> that that made the rounds of like uh, this is a smoking gun document proving uh, something. I guess is, yes. was the implication, and it made the rounds. And then you were called a well. Let's see, what does Desmond have to say about this? I think that the idea was that what it was proving is that this group are uh, is hypocritical. This group claims to be fighting for peace and justice, but really a tweet like this about God. Suggest, suggests otherwise. Yeah, don't let me kill these men and white people suggests that perhaps Black Lives Matter is really about violence or aggression or something like that. Okay, we'll return to that, but yeah. let, let's let's hear a little bit of what it sounded like when you were brought on. Desmond Cole, who is our colleague here at the radio station, it's good to have you. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, let's start off with the tweet that everybody is talking about. This is something that was uncovered by the Jerry Agar Show yesterday. It was a tweet by one of the co-founders of the group Black Lives Matter. Her name is Yusra Kogali. Does this to you embarrass the movement? No, it doesn't have anything to do with the movement. I mean, not directly. Do you feel that this tweet exposes some violence in any way, some violent thought? Yeah, I absolutely do. People who experience racism, people who experience misogyny, they don't walk around being like, ah, another day, you know, grin and bear it. Do you feel that Black Lives Matter should ask Yusra to step aside? No. Is within this group a anti-white sentiment? That is absolute nonsense. So that, that everybody is, absolute... is loving towards white people in this group? We want to hold white people accountable for seeing the state kill black men like Andrew Loku, a 45-year-old father of five who should still be alive today. And they, why they, tell, let me finish my sentence, please. So we, we, we condensed uh, 10 minutes there, and uh, there's a lot more before it gets to that point. But it got tense and it got heated. Yeah, as this conversation always does. And I've, I very much felt like, um, you know, I, I didn't get a lot of opportunities to do interviews about this subject where I was not interrupted while I was talking, where I was not asked uh, essentially, but Desmond, isn't this essentially reverse racism? Isn't this bad? Because if I... So all the people who were asking me these questions, by the way, were always white. And they would say, well, but Desmond, if I said that, if I went on Twitter and I said, oh, God, help me not to kill these men and black people, wouldn't that be racist? And yeah, they I'm, literally ask you that in that in that same interview. They asked me that in that interview. I was asked about that uh, by Stephen LeDrew on CP24. They're asking me basically, but isn't this reverse racism? That well, was, that, it was hilarious. Yeah. I can see this, I think, from at least three different perspectives, okay? I, I think that the, the you 
took the tweet on its face and said, what is literally being said here? She is asking God for like help and tolerance and patience to not return violence that is being visited upon her and people like her. Which, by the way, is part of every major religious tradition. Yeah. Let me turn the other cheek is is, is how you I couldn't to... say it better than you. Okay. Let me turn the other cheek. There's another interpretation, which is like one way that I read it, which was almost like the way that during a day, you're like, oh God, let me just, please let me not kill my kids today. They're getting on my nerves. <laughs> that was just like, like a joke, you know, like, oh. The police are coming for you, Jesse, after this podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, we're like... going to investigate you. Seriously. But, but, but again, People in the media called the Toronto police and asked them yeah. had they received any complaints about users' tweet. Right, right. As if to say it could be a, a criminal matter. Death threat. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I see I, 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 your indignation of this and just like, oh my God, like if, if I were to just say like, oh, I'm going to kill someone today. I'm so frustrated. And then someone's like, oh, look at you. You're a murderer. That's a death threat. Like that just seems like such a reactionary. And, and, and where is that coming from? The desire to look at me that way. The desire to hold me responsible as somebody who makes death threats. But, but I will make no apology, but, but I will tell you something. Here we go. When I first read that tweet, there was absolutely, before I thought about it or saw those other perspectives of how to read that, oh shit, that's my, like, Damn. That sounds really violent. That sounds like that did, as a white man, maybe influenced the way I read that. There was a, oh, dear, like that's, I, I, should, I probably shouldn't have said that. I had that total gut response to reading that. That's not something you're supposed to say. No, it is not something that you are supposed to say. And so we went from talking about real policing and how police hurt and kill black people to the policing of somebody's language. Mm -hmm. That's what this became. It was like, were you allowed to say this or not? If you worked for a good PR company, would they tell you to say this or not? And so we completely stopped talking about what the issue was, and we started well, policing the language of a black we, woman. I mean, the point made earlier, were we even talking about the issue? We, we were doing our best not to. I mean, it was it, it was interesting that the, the story only kind of made it as a story when that became the story. And basically, is this a, a legitimate movement or is this a violent radical movement that we are right to ignore? And what's ironic is that I challenged uh, Stephen LeDrew at CP24, who is my colleague, by the way, because News Talk and CP24 are both owned by Bell. I challenged him and I said, if you're so concerned about violence, when Black Lives Matter organizers, the second day that they were protesting were confronted by the police outside of the police station and the police came in hazmat essentially suits like these big suits that look like you're like going to be handling some serious chemicals and they came and they dumped chemicals on the fire that the protesters were um, using to keep warm except the chemicals got all over the protesters and all over their clothes and all over people's bags well that that seemed pretty violent when police punched and kicked and shoved people, mostly women, out of the way in order to get to that fire to put it out, in order to get to the tents that people were sleeping in to dismantle them, that was actual violence. So why aren't you guys as concerned about actual real-world violence that happens as you are about a tweet, which right. actually says, I don't want to be violent? That's where the media, I think, really uh, got exposed. And if I may say so, the media in this city showed a great lack of empathy for Yusra Kogali. Why do I say that? Because Yusra actually received actual death threats 
after all of this became a story where people called her violent, called her hateful, and then began to send her rape threats. And these are all public things that people can still go on Twitter and Facebook and find. People didn't say, oh, Lord, give me the strength to not hurt Yusra. People said, I'm going to. They were direct, uh, illegal death threats. Where was the empathy? It was almost as if to say that Yusra deserved to be receiving it. And if, if if the media was actually concerned about online threats, which they were classifying her tweet as, now, I don't agree it was a threat, but if they were actually concerned about online threats- Why is would, one threat newsworthy and not the other? Okay. Correct. But we, we, we got to back up, though, because we haven't answered the question, or at least attempted to. The media largely ignored Black Lives Matter as a live protest in our city, night after night. The media had a lot of time and a lot of interest in your thoughts on this tweet, is Yusra- going to kill somebody? Is she threatening to kill somebody? Is this movement legitimate? So why, in your opinion, is one thing a a news story and the other thing not? Because the media in Canada is trying to uphold white supremacy. And it is doing that by attacking people who threaten white supremacy. Okay. So when you say white supremacy, you know what people think of? Yeah. What do they think of? Hoods and Nazi salutes and uh, people dragging someone behind a truck or burning a cross. Right. Mm-hmm. And so people, I think, feel like that's crazy bullshit. That's radical. That's not me. That's not Canada. Mm-hmm. That doesn't. That's not, so. I think that that is such a loaded term. No, it's not. To say, well, I mean, it's loaded with that. It's loaded with that imagery. Right. We good Canadians all agree that the KKK are very bad and that that's what people ran away from to come to this wonderful country. So when you say that the media is trying to uphold white supremacy, I know that you have a very different understanding and interpretation of what that means. But that is incendiary. It's an incendiary like, you know, like that does. I I really hope so. (laughs) So I I really hope that when I say that it provokes people because White supremacy is very simply the idea that whiteness should be dominant in this part of the world. That even though white people are not from this part of the world, Jesse, that their laws and ideas and customs and traditions should be what govern this part of the world because their way of doing things is better than other people's ways of doing things. But to a person, that's almost indistinguishable from the the guys in sheets. If you say that the editor who commissioned the story on the tweet now has to consider themselves someone who's trying to uphold white supremacy in Canada, Mm -hmm. they they don't think that that's them. That's their problem. They need to look into their heart and ask themselves why when a young woman who is out here fighting for justice and fighting for racial equity, why when she gets death threats? This is somebody, Yusra Kogali is one of the most peace-loving people that I have met. Because when she was angry about the society that she lives in, she went and organized a peaceful protest that drew thousands of people who came and sang and chanted and danced and shared stories with one another and bonded with one another and asked for justice through the democratic process. That's what she did when she was angry. These are all very peaceful actions. We should be encouraging somebody like that in our society, but instead when she received death threats for a fake controversy, no one in the media had her back. So Jesse, you tell me, Why is it 
that people did not care at the death threats and all of the harassment that this woman was receiving unless they believed in in some way it's just desserts that in some way this is what you get when you say things on the internet it was a game to our media okay i will take that position and see if i can get through it here uh, it's not newsworthy when a person who's like an organizer for a, a political movement gets death threats from same, we put that in the same category, crazies, right? There's crazies out there that they're, they're the KKK posse or whatever the Canadian version is, online cranks, they're going to make death threats. Why would we give that airtime? But she is a person of some public import. So when she says stuff that twigs people as oh, that's a racially charged, it's also got like, oh, Allah is in there. That is pushing buttons of like, this is not sanctioned talk. This is not, we we uh, are going to seize upon this statement because this person is asking to be part of a mainstream discourse. Ah, ah, ah. And we control the mainstream discourse uh-huh. and we get to decide whether or not this woman gets to have a voice. And so we are going to be very strict on her, maybe stricter than we would be on other people because we're threatened by her getting into the mainstream mm-hmm. discourse and we're not letting her in until we have sufficiently flogged her. Mm-hmm. That's what the media was doing. It was or, saying, or at all. It I don't know that it was a hazing want, ritual. I think it, it was, was absolutely hazing. It was if you well, want. hazing suggests that you're going to get in. Right? <laughs> True. It, it was if you want us to cover what you're doing, then you need to play by our rules. And what it revealed was a deep resentment for what Black Lives Matter is saying and what Black Lives Matter stands for. And Jesse, when I talk about people upholding white supremacy, when I talk about that, what I'm talking about is people being more sympathetic, Yeah. for example, to a state where a black person can get killed by a police officer and nothing happens, they're more sympathetic to keeping that than they are to just allowing a few people to be like, yo, that's really wrong. Even a few people being successful at being like, yo, that police killing was really whack. People are so threatened by that, but they're not at all threatened by a police officer having the power to kill with impunity. That is how you uphold white supremacy. And it doesn't make you... Um, a card-carrying KKK member, but it means that your actions are hurting rather than helping the issue of racial equity. What I think this whole episode revealed about Canada is the opposite of me too. Not me, not me, hmm. not me. This isn't us, this isn't Canada. And, and we don't want to think of ourselves that way. And what that tweet allowed people to do is to ignore, right? Change, is, change the channel. Is to change the channel and say, okay, we have been ignoring Black Lives Matter and we are right to because this is proof. If everybody there is a radical and a nut or like just like a, a campus extremist or something, then that says something about them. It doesn't say anything about us. Yes. I don't know if they asked her and she wouldn't come on. Uh, I know that she was uh, she was approached by media and she, and she didn't comment on it. So then you became the guy. Yeah, that was me because I, I dared to stand up and say I can totally understand what um, she said. But let me, let, me, let me go back to this idea that just because you ask some questions about this and just because you challenge this, it doesn't mean that you're upholding um, white supremacy. Well, I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that you're upholding it. I uh, just don't think that that's like what's consciously motivating. I people. don't care what's consciously motivating people in the Canadian media. Uh-huh. I care about what they're doing. Uh-huh. I'm not going to sit around and say, I know what's in your heart because I can look deep inside of you. I'm looking at what you do and judging you based on that. Yeah. Jesse, 
We live in a country where, in the last 10 years, the federal prison population for black Canadians has increased between 60 to 70 percent. That's in the last 10 years in our country. We're living in a country where hundreds of thousands of black people are being arbitrarily stopped and documented and put into a database by their own police. This is called carding. And just two days ago, Hamilton, Ontario's first black city councillor, Matthew Green, was stopped and interrogated at length by one of his own police who asked him questions like, are you even from around here? He was standing waiting for the bus. So when people find this out, why aren't they like, man, that's messed up. We don't want that in our country. Why do they feel the need to explain it, to justify it, to mitigate how bad people think it is? They are invested in something that makes them not want to acknowledge this stuff. And that thing that they're invested in is what I call white supremacy, because that is the thing that is hurting black people. And they're trying to be like, yeah, but it's not so bad. And I think that that is dangerous, dangerous, dangerous stuff. Can we talk about you for a bit? Sure. You and I met and started working together shortly before I think your life changed dramatically. You wrote a big story on carding on racial profiling for Toronto Life magazine. Your face was on the cover of Toronto Life magazine. You could draw a direct line from that story to the Toronto police supposedly abandoning the practice of carding. Very influential piece of journalism. I think almost overnight you became the face of Black Toronto and Toronto being the media center for the mainstream media, anyhow. You became the go-to guy. You started writing a column for the Toronto Star, started writing a book, and you're also hosting Canada Commons. I know from working in news organizations that if there's a Muslim issue, there's like three people, you know, can we get this person? No. Can we get that person? No. Well, we don't have anybody else. You know, it, it, that's how it goes. It seemed to me that since that Toronto Life column to this moment, if it has to do with black, you're the guy they call. Yeah. I mean, I want to be clear that uh, Drake is clearly the face of black Toronto. Oh my gotta, God. Got to give it up to Drizzy, man. Like I, I, you know, I'm not in the conversation. I always thought he was the face of Forest Hill, Toronto. But... <laughs> he can be both. He can be both. That's a whole other topic. Um, no, you're the, but when you're it comes the, to political, politics and, yeah, yeah. when it comes to political issues, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I was the person that started being called. And let me tell you, it's had a really big impact on my life. When I go out in public now, people recognize me for the work that I've been doing. People recognize me for being on the cover of that magazine. And, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, they recognize me in a really positive and beautiful and warm kind of way. And for that, I am truly blessed. There's only one problem, though. And that is that, you know, I told you about going to Ferguson, Around that time in my career, like late 2014, I was starting to do more TV hits and stuff. I was getting on Global a lot, Global TV doing a panel every week. And so people were starting to recognize my face and my name. And so when that Toronto, Toronto Life story dropped, I think a lot of the reaction that you saw was like, oh my God, that guy, that guy that I see on TV, he gets like followed around by the police all the time. Well, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. Just like I think people responding this week to 
the Hamilton's first black city councilor getting stopped by his police be like, that is crazy. Because you, both of you are black men in the mainstream discourse who seem like very intelligent, reasonable people who are not on the crazy spectrum where we can forget about it. So it humanizes it. Yeah, it but I tell you something, my, my black people are all intelligent and driven and powerful, beautiful, valuable people. Yeah, but they're not but, on the Rolodex. You're the one that gets called. That's the problem, though. That right. That is the problem, is that what we do is we've reduced this down to a couple of people's stories, including my own, and we focused all the attention on that. And so, actually, one of the police strategies to try and rehabilitate and save carding is to be like, Desmond Cole is a liar. I think Desmond's lying, because, hey, if you can discredit the one guy who got his story out then you can kill the issue. What the media should have been doing this whole time, and the thing I'm extremely critical of, is after my story was published, the media should have been going into all communities and talking to black people all across the city and being like, what do you think of this guy's story? How does this story relate to your life? I didn't just talk about me, and I didn't just talk about policing. That story was about racism in Ontario and in Canada. Mm -hmm. And... I didn't just talk about my experience. I talked about stats like the ones that I've been sharing here with you about how all black people, the average black person is living. And so I think it's been very irresponsible actually of our media to keep going to me like I have some unique oh, knowledge on this Oh, it puts you in a really stuff. weird spot because on the one hand, you know, finally they're paying attention to these issues and there's airtime for it. On the other hand, it is to the exclusion of anybody else. People are looking to you as an individual human being to represent the entire black community and the future of whether or not these things are going to keep happening or whether we acknowledge that they happen at all. That is a whole lot for one person to shoulder. Mm-hmm. It is a whole lot for somebody to balance with a professional life where usually when you're doing punditry, it's like kind of pro bono. It's sort of like an addendum that fuels your career as a public thinker, writer, commentator, but it is not what you're actually getting paid for. Uh, I know that it's been difficult for you. The difference between my points of um, where I can relate to that and yours is that it feels like for you it's just been constant, that it's been set to that for about a year now and hasn't relented. And there have been times when we haven't like heard from you and we've been worried about you. And there, there have been times when I've just like felt like, has that guy been sleeping? I, and I'm just, you know, I, I know that you are scaling back and trying to get a bit more balance right now. And I just want to know, like, are you okay? And like, how are you going to handle this going forward? And, and what, how do you kind of negotiate the dynamic of like, they're calling me again and do I go or not? The last year has been exhausting. Let me say that. Um, I would be lying if I'd said otherwise. It's been a whole lot to deal with emotionally. Uh, The emotions are the biggest part of it. It's been a whole lot to deal with in terms of being one of the only black people speaking out in the media because, as I said, a lot of us are talented and have things to say about this. But with the pressure to be called on to speak all the time also comes all of the antagonism. So when people want to direct their anger at someone, I'm very visible and a lot of that gets anger. And, and if we can discredit you to, to your ideological opponents, then that, that serves a purpose. So you, you kind of like to walk around feeling like everything you're saying is going to get torn apart and, and picked away to find some, some great sin or some error on your part. Yeah, but I don't mind, right? Because this is all bigger than me. I I started talking at the beginning about how Black Lives Matter is a movement. It's an idea, right? Somebody can try to discredit me if they want to. 
but that's not going to discredit the idea or the movement that is currently taking place. I lay low a lot of the time because it's the only way that I know how to handle the pressure of this work. I get involved and I get really deep in in certain moments and I, I, I think it probably feels to people like, man, that guy's everywhere. And then there are other times where I just lay low because that's the only thing that I can do in order to survive. I will say this too. I kind of like it. It is an honor and it is a challenge for me to be able to fight in the ways that I'm fighting. I don't know how many people in journalism think of what they're doing as being part of a fight, being part of a struggle. Um, but I do. I absolutely got into this profession in order to try and advance important ideas to shine light on things that are not often talked about and to represent my community, the black community. And it's a great honor to be able to do that and to have any voice and exposure whatsoever. The only thing that I need to make sure that I do is to remember that this is really truly not about me and that if I want other people to expand the conversation in the black community, I have to do that too. I have to give other people my microphone and give them a chance to talk and to share their experiences which are different from mine and which are broader than mine and make sure that they're also part of the conversation. That's like my burden with all of this attention that I'm getting. I have a responsibility to give other people what I've been given. A little, little chance at the microphone. Little chance at the microphone. Maybe even a big chance at the microphone. Man, this is going to happen whether I talk about it in the media or not, whether I answer another call or not. People should be paying attention to what's happening right now because it's historic. You and I uh, talked about commons and, you know, I think we kind of came together to the, the conclusion that like co-hosting that show every week while writing your book and your column and News Talk 1010 and everything else you're doing is not like going to work in the mix right now. I have been really, really lucky to have had you hosting that show with Andre. I want you to, I know that there's a lot of uh, suitors who want you to write for them and, and come and, and speak to them, but I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll always feel at home here. Well, I mean, I want to thank you for this opportunity to host Commons. It's been almost a year and it's gone by really, really quickly because we've been having a lot of fun making the show and I've learned a lot about myself and about our country and about lots of things that I don't know or don't think about properly or do well. So it's been really humbling. I'm going to miss all of the wonderful feedback that we get from our audience at Commons. And I know that we're going to continue keeping up the quality and the exploration of that program uh, for a long time to come. So I wish Sapria and the other folks who are going to sit in this studio the best. And, um, I'll be around. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Check it out right now for information on this week's live event at UVic. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon. Dot com slash Canada Land. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday, and the next episode of Shortcuts will be up on Thursday. 
I make this show with Katie Jensen. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.